Welcome back to Portfolio Rescue. Duncan, I would wish you a Happy New Year, but I'm not a Happy New Year kind of guy. I don't do it. No, nothing against people who do it. It's just not my thing. I don't, I don't say it. Maybe this is kind of like my Larry David thing, but I'm just not a uh, Happy New Year kind of guy. No problem with people who say it, but that's just me. Kind of like investing. It's just as important to define what you won't invest in as what you will invest in. Today's show is sponsored by... Yes, Liftoff Invest. That's our automated platform that is run through Betterman's technology. Duncan, I was looking at my Liftoff account. I have one account, but I have four goals under there. One of them is for me and my wife, just a general investment account. The other one, each one for three of our kids. I was looking, and surprisingly, the investments were down this year, but my market values were up. Why? Because I increased my savings rate, right? I think especially for young people, that's a really big thing these days, is that, yes, it hurts to see the value of your portfolio go down, but if you bump up your savings rate, especially when you're just starting out, that's where most of your gains are going to come from. They're not technically gains, but if you want to see growth in your, por- in your portfolio, it's going to come from putting money to work. Go check out liftoffinvest.com to learn more. Uh, Duncan, you told me that you finished my most recent book. It's a pretty short one. How many pages is that? 140? Uh, let's see. I have, it, I have it right here. It's, uh, yeah, it's like, no, not even. It's like 116 pages. It's a short yeah. book, everything you need to know about saving for retirement. I wrote it for people with 401ks or 403bs who are just getting started, and maybe some of our clients' kids have read it, some people in our 401k plans. You told me that you finished reading it and had some questions or had some thoughts. Yeah, yeah, no, I've had a lot of thoughts. I was like, you know, I wish I did a podcast with Ben because then I could ask him these <laughs> questions. And then, yeah, it, it worked out. Um, oh, first of all, I just wanted to say, you know, on behalf of a lot, we had a lot of people writing in and commenting, you know, we're all sorry for you um, getting so robbed of your take um, that, you know, Michael Michael took your Bezos take <laughs> and and just got like famous off of it. it, was on TV yesterday talking about it and stuff. So he's going to be the new Michael loss. Burry because he leased one of my takes about Jeff Bezos coming back <laughs> to take over Amazon. That's the yeah. kind of podcast co-host and friend that I am. I, I, I'm willing to give my takes away to other people. I have too yeah. many of them. It's very, very generous, very generous. But yeah, so a couple of things I just thought of that I noted down that I wanted to ask you about. They're very basic probably, but but I think people would be curious to hear, or a lot of our younger people especially. But so you're you're known as the, the target date guy. You're a target date expert, connoisseur. Um, what happens to them when they hit their date? I mean, do they just go 100% bonds and stay that way forever? Does it just disappear into the ether? What, what happens there? Well, I looked at the Vanguard 2020 fund today. So someone would have set that 10, 15 years ago and said, I'm going to retire in 2020. This is going to be my glide path to that point. It's in roughly 45% stocks, 55% bonds right now. So your investing life cycle doesn't stop just the moment you retire. You still could have two, three decades. It just moves into a different phase. We actually have a question about this for today's show, which we'll get into more detail. So yeah, it, it just it gets more conservative over time. Okay. But yeah, okay. still some stocks in there because you still need some growth in your portfolio. Okay, so they don't actually they don't end or anything like that or go away. No, it keeps point. going and it keeps going in the glide path. It'll probably get more and more conservative the further you get away from that date. But it's there's still some stocks in there. Okay, cool, good to know. Uh, okay, another thing I was going to ask you talk a lot about having to you know a huge part of the book is withstanding volatility, withstanding uh, downturns in the market, and just sticking with it. Um, have computers and algorithms and modern technology and retail traders, all of the stuff that we think about when we think about the market today, have they made the market less volatile and susceptible to, to downturns or more or not really impacted it? Overall volatility, like if you measured by standard deviation, is probably pretty similar, like annualizing that number. But 
the speed of the volatility has increased. I remember there was an interview with a guy who was a fixed income manager for Vanguard and he was retiring. And he said he started in the early 80s. And he said, back in like 1981, when a news event occurred, you had time to actually sit and think about it. If something happened overseas, it might not affect the US market until like the next day. Now everything is instantaneous. Like you don't have time to think through these things. So I think the speed of volatility has certainly increased. Computers and stuff make, you know, if there's a piece of news or economic data that hits, it immediately hits the stock market. I don't think that was the case in the past. You would have to get some of your news from the market over the radio back in the day instead of seeing it in real time. So I think the overall volatility is probably pretty similar, but the speed of the volatility and the speed of the moves is probably much faster. Okay. And I I think that's probably going to continue. Yeah, I was wondering because the behavioral aspect you would think would be getting better with all the automation and stuff like that. So so in my head, I was thinking, like, I wonder if that has made made the market a little more stable. Well, on the other hand, it's it's easier to pay, never been easier to pay attention than ever before, right? Right. To have that long-term mindset because you're being force-fed everything in the short term over and over again. So it's harder to think and act for the long term because you can see everything happen on a minute-by-minute basis. True, true. So along kind of a, a similar thread, one of my favorite stats in there was nearly 29,000 companies traded on the US, U.S. stock market from 1950 to 2009. Almost 80% were gone by 2009. So my question for you is, do you think that we'll lose 80% of companies over the next 59 years, or has that changed? Is the, is the business world more resilient now? I don't know if your oat milk company is still going to be in business by then. <laughs> so I think I got this stats from Scale by Jeffrey West, which is a really good book. And I actually think technology is only going to speed this up. Companies of old required way more upfront you know, investment in actual physical assets. Michael had a good one. I'm going to steal this from him. He said like the first billion-dollar corporation ever was U.S. Steel in 1901. And they had 170,000 employees and like $3,300 in sales per employee, right? And that's still like 90000 in today's dollars. But today, they have over 500000 per employee because they've gotten more efficient. Technology has gotten better. Uh, software makes it easier than ever to, you know, start businesses. I just think, I look at this as a good thing too. I think it's creative destruction where the quicker these these old companies are being pushed out and the new companies companies are coming in, I think that's a good thing. And the one great thing about owning a diverse set of companies in the stock market is eventually those ones that rise to the top are going to, you know, show up in your in your portfolio. I think the first trillion dollar company, it's possible it hasn't even been created yet. And it's going to be created in the future that solves some big problem that we don't even know yet. All right. So I, I yeah. think this is a good thing. That makes sense. Um, all right. So uh, last but not least out of these, I, I just uh, wrote down, what's a simple way for a young person to assess their risk tolerance? You talk a lot about risk tolerance and knowing your risk in different phases of life. How, how does someone probably, figure that out? One of the hardest things to do, it's, it's probably the only thing you can do is like have experience. I know people say like, oh, put together a paper portfolio, pretend like you're trading, you've known money. Unfortunately, it's difficult to say how you'll react until you actually do it with some of seeing like your life savings get chopped in half. I, one of my favorite books of all time is this Where the Customers Yacht by Fred Schwed. It's, uh, I think it was written in like the 1930s or 1940s. He had this great quote that I use all the time. He said, like all of life's rich emotional experiences, the full flavor of losing important money cannot be conveyed by literature. There are certain things that cannot be adequately explained to a virgin either by words or pictures. And so I think sometimes you have to just live through it and, and see like I can keep 100% of my portfolio in stocks, I think I can, I have a high risk tolerance, but until you actually do it and go through something like last year and see that money fall, uh, I think you have to kind of, you know, play it by year and experience it. And, and the good thing about if you're a young person investing is that you probably aren't going to have a huge amount of capital when you're learning these things, right? So you, you learn and make your mistakes or you kind of, you know, change the dial a little bit when you are young. 
Right. Yeah, and you write about this some, right? That that a fifty percent loss when you have a couple thousand in the market starting out isn't nearly as bad as fifty percent loss when you have a much larger portfolio. Yeah, or a twenty percent loss could be more painful if you have more money because it's more dollars going out of your account than even getting chopped in half when you don't have as much money. Right. Right. Good. Good plug for my book there, Duncan. Way to go. Yeah. Yeah. I, I and I had one one quote I wanted to share with people that I think, especially again for everyone, but especially our younger and new new investors. Um, you say or you have in there. Uh, your actions during down markets have a larger say in your success or failure as an investor than how you act during rising markets. So I think that's that's right. a good thing for everyone to I acknowledge think right now. It, giving up on an investment plan is no different than failure, right? Because if you give up and you just throw your arms up and you sell when things are down just because you can't take it anymore, that that giving up on your plan is 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 no plan at all is my way of looking at it. Yeah, I like that. Cool. Yeah. So strong recommendation. I, I enjoyed it. Yeah. And I've been I've been soaking in all the knowledge from all of you guys for for years now, and I still I still learn some stuff and still uh, got a lot out of it. So yeah, perfect. All right, let's get into a question. Okay, so first up today we have 2022 was all about inflation. Now people are talking about peak inflation and possible deflation. What does deflation look like? Why do people say it's worse than inflation? Also, why do they say tech is deflationary? All right, it does appear inflation has peaked for the time being. John, throw up the chart here. You can see if I'm performing technical analysis on this, I can see a line and a peak and a line down. That has to mean something. Uh, it is important to remind people, though, that we have had inflation before these past 20 months or so of rapidly rising inflation. Even before the current bout of high inflation, prices were still rising. They were doing so at a much more modest pace. So, John, throw this other chart on. This is CPI from 2010 to 2020. It was modest. It was up like 21% in total a little less than 2% a year. We still had inflation. No one just, people didn't really pay attention that much to it because it was a relatively stable increase over time. There weren't any huge jumps or falls. I guess you could call that price stability. Uh, I don't know if we're going to go from inflation to deflation. It is a possibility if we get a nasty recession and things, you know, slow down considerably. To the point about inflation versus deflation, why wouldn't you want deflation, right? It's, it's prices falling. Who wouldn't want that? Well, the economy for one and probably your paycheck for another. My view is not necessarily that inflation is good. It's just that it's less bad than deflation. Deflation is like this negative, crazy negative feedback loop. So prices start to fall because people, so people stop buying today in the hopes that they'll be able to buy stuff cheaper in the future. And so people stop buying stuff today. Business profits go down. People are laid off. People get unemployed. As unemployment rate rises, people's paychecks fall. You know, it's like a death spiral of future price cuts. That's why there was huge deflation in the Great Depression. And trust me, people seeing their prices falling was not a good thing because that happened because there was 25% unemployment. I think prices fell like 10% across the board in the US economy. So I think if we want our incomes and standard of living to rise, we're going to have to accept some price inflation over time because that's just, that's just progress. It's a natural byproduct of growth. And so we're probably always going to have a little bit of inflation over the long term, assuming we're still advancing as a species. So I look at rising prices as the lesser of two evils. People don't really like that, but it's, if you want to continue to see growth and progress in, in our economy, you're going to have to accept some inflation. What we've seen this past year, year and a half, is not, not normal, not what we'd like, but even if inflation goes down from here, it's still going to be, prices are still going to be rising, just not at a, as much of a high pace. Okay, yeah, I'm, I'm most familiar with it because Kathy, Kathy Wood seems to talk a lot about uh, deflationary forces. In tech, right? I think so, that's where a lot of people. So are I mean, this. people think it's a risk because that would probably mean a nasty recession, and so I think if you had the, if you gave me the choice of 
inflation, but it's with economic growth and people's wages are rising versus deflation and people are losing their jobs and it's recession, I'd probably take the, the lesser of two evils and have that inflation. Right, yeah. It's because yeah, I'm a man of the people. AI is going to change this, right? AI, AI, Ben and Duncan will be doing this show in a couple of years, edited by... Well, people ask, he asked why is technology uh, deflationary and it's because it just makes us more efficient, right? And right. back in the 1800s, 80% of us were farmers. Now, I don't know, I think the percentage of people that work on farms is like 1%. It's because we have technology that's available to make it easier so people can do other jobs. People have the ability to complain on the internet all day because technology has made our lives easier. That's our right. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> all right, let's do another uh, one. Okay. That question was from uh, Yajur, uh, by the way. And so next we have a question from Chuck. Uh, do you think the stock market is a form of Ponzi scheme? And I got to be honest, this this question, I think, triggered me a little bit. I'm sure it triggered you a little bit, but we love you, Chuck. But uh, but yeah. Uh, do you think the stock market is a form of Ponzi scheme? The average dividend payout for all stocks is a little over 1%. Back in 1958, the average lifespan of a corporation was 58 years, but it's now down to around 15 years. So why are people investing in the stock market? The answer is they hope to make money uh, from selling a piece of paper to someone else, the greater fool, at a nice profit. If there's no one there to buy your piece of paper, you won't make money in the long run. Okay. Listen, if if Charles Ponzi's scheme did what the stock market does, it wouldn't be used uh, as a way to talk down on someone for doing fraud. It would be a good thing. So the short answer is no. I don't think the stock market is a form of Ponzi scheme. A Ponzi scheme, old investors are paid off by new investors, investors in quotes, because there's no business plan, there's no revenues, right? The stock market is made up of corporations, and those corporations make products, they perform services, consumers and other businesses buy those products and services, that results in revenue. Some of that revenue is used to pay costs of running the business, but the, whatever's left over is used to pay down debt or buy back shares or pay dividends out to stock investors or be rein, reinvested back in the business. So the profits of the business actually accrue to the shareholders, right? They have a piece of that profit. And so, so as sales and dividends and earnings grow over time, Stocks are worth more money. It is true that dividend yields are lower than they were in the past. John, do a chart on of dividend yields. This is the dividend yield on the S&P 500 since 1950. You can see in 1950, it was like 7%. That was abnormally high, mostly because of the Great Depression and the hangover from that. But even in the 70s and 80s, we're talking 3 to 6% dividend yields, pretty high. Today, it's more, closer to like 1.6. So the trend has been down since then. Valuations are much higher. That has something to do with it. But there's also a reason that you can see, starting in the 1980s, there was a precipitous drop in the dividend yield. You can say, well, that's because stocks were going up. But it's also because Congress passed a law in the early 80s that made it easier for corporations to buy back their own stock. John, do the next chart. This is buybacks and dividends. This is going back to 1998 from Yardenia Research. And I don't want to go down the rabbit hole here, but if essentially stock buybacks and dividends are the same thing. If you, if you know, understand how math works and how capital allocation works, they're essentially the same thing. So if you combine dividends and share buybacks, the yield picture doesn't look quite so bleak. It's closer to 5% now if you combine dividends and buybacks. They have it at 4.9% here. And so the shareholder yield is actually pretty good still. So that's actually not that bad. That's that's part of the reason. It's 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 And actually, from a tax basis, it's actually better for investors if they do buy back their stock. So plus, you can't simply look at the yield itself to figure out the benefits. The S&P 500 has seen total dividends since that 1950 rise at an annual rate of nearly 6% per year. Per year, that's above the 3% rate of inflation where dividends are growing above and beyond that. So it's not like that yield is just, the income is staying the same. The income is rising, but the stock market is rising a little faster. So you're getting an income stream that rises above the rate of inflation. Earnings rise above that same level. 
it is true that supply and demand matters. So if more people decide they want to own shares in the stock market and they rush in to buy, the amount of investors willing to pay for them will rise, so valuations go up. If fewer people want to own stocks, then valuations will fall. But even if fewer people wanted to own stocks in the future, it's not like stock profits would stop accruing, you'd probably just see more corporations buy back their own stock, and whoever did own stock would just see their share of earnings and dividends and all that stuff rise. Plus, money has to go somewhere. So if everyone decided, we're taking all of our money out of the stock market, we're putting it in cash and bonds, right? I wouldn't recommend that, but if people did that, the yields would, look, would be so low that the stock market would have to look attractive on a relative basis. So yes, there needs to be a buyer for every seller, but people aren't dumb. If the stock market continues to see profits and cash flows rise, someone is going to buy. So I think if you, if you think the stock market is a Ponzi scheme and want to sit it out, that's fine. More profits for us who want to own shares in the stock market. That's, that's the, the way I look at it. It's, yeah, it's, it's not a Ponzi scheme. And, and the way that corporations work, and as big and powerful as they are, they would just use their capital allocation to buy back shares, and then they'd be the ones accruing all the gains. Yeah, the I gains think, are going to go to someone. I think you the might buyback as well take stuff, a part in it. Yeah, I think the buyback stuff is a little confusing. Yeah, I, I find that math a little confusing, honestly. But uh, And I think a lot of people think, oh, I'm buying ownership in a company, essentially, with my shares. I should get some of the profit, right? And so I okay, think quick, that is the, the mentality sometimes. Quick example. Let's say that you there's $100 in profits. There's five shareholders. Each of them have $20 in, in earnings, right? Now right. let's say the comp- company buys one of those shareholders out. There's four shareholders, still $100 in profit, right? Now those profits are shared among only four shareholders instead of five. So the, so the profit per share goes up, right? It's a white bulb moment. Even if the profits are the same. Yeah, no, I've, I haven't heard it explained that, that simply before. So yeah, yeah that makes sense. So, so whether they paid out dividends to people or bought back shares, the cash is going to go out either way. And so it's either people are going to be paid back in cash or their earnings per share is going to rise because the share count falls. So it's, it's the same thing. A lot of people think this is like a, a it, it's like a, a weird buyback or like this, this, this big like Illuminati thing, but it's not. It's, it's pretty simple. Yeah, no, it sounds like it. Yeah. Team buybacks right, now. do another one. There All you right. go. Uh, up next, we have a question from Parker. I've been laid off twice. Uh, once in 2015 and again in 2020 due to COVID. I've had five jobs since then. Currently VP of sales at a logistics company. I've got about five months of household income saved and for a few years it sat in a brokerage account earning zero in a stable value fund. Stupid, maybe, but it was safe. So where do you recommend people put their emergency funds? What do you think about online banks? So this is one of those common things we get asked about. Well, this, I mean, you talked about risk tolerance for investors. We talk a lot about that in the investing world. People rarely talk about tolerance for risk when it comes to personal finance. And I think this person, Parker, being laid off twice, changing jobs three other times, that's a lot. Hopefully, they're one of these people that is, that is changing jobs and getting paid more. That, right. That's what the stats say now. People who are changing jobs are getting much higher wages than people who are sticking, staying put. But if you're going to have some sort of career where you're going to have that much volatility, I don't know what, what they do or what field they're in, but then you probably want to have a little more set aside, right? So th- there's all sorts of different, should I have 12 months saved or six months or three months? A lot of it depends on your tolerance for volatility in your personal finances, but also like how your career is set up. There are a lot more options these days. I Like him, I had my money saving an online savings account for years earning nothing. I think it got as low as 25 basis points during the pandemic in 2020 when the Fed went down to zero. I did a quick perusal of them this today. So you have places like Ally, Marcus, Capital One, Three Hundred and Sixty, SoFi, even like Wealthfront, Betterment, Robinhood have cash management programs. I found anything in the range of three point three percent to three point eight percent for these, you know. And 
and FDIC insured and, and fairly safe and liquid. You could find a one to three month T-bill ETF these days. Pretty easy if you Google it. 4.3%, I think I saw this morning. I saw a money market account for a client this morning at Schwab, yielding over 4%. 12-month CD, I looked today, 4.3%. Series I savings bonds, we've talked about them a lot here. Still yielding 6.9% until April, at which point I would expect that number to fall quite a bit because inflation is falling. So there are tons of options today. Today, in, in the past few years, you had to go way out on the risk curve to earn anything approaching yield. This is all relatively safe stuff. It's FDIC insured for the most part. If you're investing in short-term government bonds, uh, the chance of default is basically nil unless we get an alien invasion. So savers are no longer being punished by the Fed is what I'm saying. This is one good thing the Fed is doing, I guess. I, I think my only rule of thumb is don't put your money into something you have to jump through a bunch of hoops through. Some of them will say you have to have a direct deposit or you have to do like 10 transactions or for an extra 10 basis points to me, that's not really worth it. I just think it should be something liquid, an easy technology interface. So one of the reasons that these online banks can offer higher yields is because the brick and mortar banks have a lot more overhead. And the banks are just kind of jerks. And they just, I think that I looked at the average today, the average savings rate at a, an FDIC insured brick and mortar bank is like 24 basis points still. It's ridiculous. That should be criminal. So you can get like 3.3, 3 3.5% at an online bank. I think my only advice is just don't try to go yield hunting and jump from bank to bank or place to place because you can get an extra 10 or 20 basis points. Just find a place you're comfortable with. Make sure they're not taking advantage of you. But I'd say nothing less than at least three, three and a quarter right now. The Fed funds rate is at four, four and a half percent. So I, I would say anything lower than three and 3.25 is probably too low, especially in, in liquid stuff. Yeah, it, it kind of reminds me of you guys talking about refinancing a house. There has to be a big enough gap for it to be worth you switching all of your exactly. you know, stuff around. Uh, you, you can't just do it for like 25 but basis if, points. But if you have money... Like in a in a big bank and it's paying you 20 basis points, yes, go through the process of opening a new account in the paperwork and move it over. Right. And not to right, brag, but I'm getting 4.05. So, um, yeah. Where at? Uh, Enzo. So, okay. Yeah. I, I, I'm sure I missed a ton of different ones that are out there. I know there's a lot of platforms these days. Yeah, yeah. There's, there's a lot. Um, you, just, you had to go two decimal points out there, didn't you? Just to... <laughs> 4.05 percent. All right. Yeah. 0.05 percent yeah. is doing a lot of work here. Hey, well, 0.05 is what I was getting at my big bank, like you're saying before. So it's literally four percent more. Um, All yeah. right. Okay. So uh, up next, we have a question from Hector. I have over 180 hours of PTO. That's paid time off, right? Um, that I will never it. come close to fully collecting. Those hours are equal to four and a half weeks of vacation uh, or pay if I resign or get laid off. Do you think it's a viable option to use my unused PTA, PTO as an emergency fund? I'm building up my liquid cash emergency fund, and I have close to two months saved. If this is a viable option, two months of cash savings is all I would need to save. Thoughts? So I have some thoughts on this after, okay, after can, whatever you have to say. Can we use two questions about emergency savings funds as a, as a way of how the market are going and potentially a recession indicator? Yeah. Uh, we definitely weren't getting these questions in 2020 and 2021. No. Uh, four and a half weeks is of pay is certainly a nice fallback plan. This depends on how you define emergency, I think. So I don't know, how easily could you cash in on that vacation pay and, and get, get it in a pinch if you really needed it? Like, would it take some time for a company to pay it out? Are you sure that money is coming to you if it, you get laid off? I just, I'm not questioning your company, but I would feel safer if that money was in my checking account or savings account and doing something for me. Maybe if you can cash it out every six months or 12 months, just in case. Uh, uh, again, I, I think it, a lot of it comes down to what you consider an actual emergency like versus infrequent expenses. So some people 
plan for car expenses and home maintenance and healthcare expenses. And those aren't actual emergencies. Those are things that happen infrequently, but they're expenses you can plan on. An actual emergency is when the apartment above you leaves their windows open and turns their heat off and the pipes freeze and then it floods your apartment like you, Duncan. Right, that's an actual emergency that you'd want to have a fallback plan for, that's, right? Which is why yeah. you're yeah. a vagabond right now and have nowhere to live. <laughs> Losing your job is obviously an emergency. I think it also depends on what other kind of backup plans you have. Like, do you have a home equity line of credit or a taxable investment account that you could sell or Roth IRA contributions that you'd want to tap? Maybe like a 0% credit card, something that could bridge the gap if you really need that money until you could get that, those four and a half weeks paid off. What, what do you think? What are your reservations here? Yeah, no, I was just, I was going to say basically the same thing. I was just going to say, yeah, in my situation with an apartment being flooded, yes, we have renter's insurance. They're going to cover, you know, most everything outside of the deductible, obviously, but we're having to pay out of pocket, right? And so yes. there are a bunch of huge expenses up front, like getting an Airbnb in Brooklyn or somewhere around New York City, you know, ranges like, you know, I'm seeing 8,000, 10,000, you know, plus for a month, um, that kind of stuff. And, you know, so yeah, just having like fun that you can pull that from would be, much more helpful than probably being like, oh, I would have to quit my job to get my PTO and be able to have this cash up front, you know, or because I, I don't think as, most places will give you money for your PTO until you literally are leaving, right? It's not like you can cash it out, I don't think. Right, it, it could be that. So if that's if that's what your your biggest worry is, losing your job, then maybe that that it's it. Right. But I think if, if I'm talking about an actual emergency savings, I want it to be liquid and I want to get it within, you know, 24 hours or so. I want it to be relatively easy to get. Most online savings accounts, you'll have the money if you put in for a transfer withdrawal within the, the, that day or the next day. It doesn't take, all, if you have, even if you have an ETF that you have it in short-term cash, it'll settle in a couple days. So yeah, I'd be worried about using this as an actual emergency, but maybe if your emergency you're planning for is losing your job, then it, then it makes sense. Right. And yeah, and just, you know, a PSA, um, if you live in an apartment, be a good neighbor and don't leave your windows open and heat off when it's below zero outside, you know, but uh, yeah. Okay. That's rough. They should have to do the walk of shame and just out of the building. <laughs> they, they should. They really should. Uh, okay. Right, so we got one more. Yeah. Last but not least, we have a question from Tom. I'm in my mid sixties with retirement coming very soon. There's a lot of doom and gloom for people in my position with the market dropping just as we're retiring. However, I hope to be in the market 20 years from now and still see myself as a long-term investor. Even after retirement, we're still investors, right? Excellent point here, Tom. And congrats, Great question. congrats on retiring. Yeah. Yes. Now, there's two ways to look at that. It stinks that you're retiring right when markets are dropping, but also you had 10 years of fantastic returns to get your portfolio to a level that made it sting when it dropped. So it's, it's kind of a double-edged sword there where you, you were doing pretty good up until this point, and your portfolio would not have been as high if we didn't have the gains that preceded this bear market. And it's possible the only reason stocks are falling a lot is because they went up a lot in the first place. So the average American now retires at 62. 100 years ago, the average American died at 51. Most people worked until they died. According to the Social Security Administration, they actually have this cool longevity thing. You can, t you can put in your age or your spouse's age and see how long your life expectancy is based on some averages. A couple retiring today has a 50% chance at least one of them will live until their 90s. Uh, so most people want a retirement where they can relax and enjoy themselves. And most people probably retire quicker than they would have assumed. Like people think, oh, I'm going to, if I don't have enough money, I'll just keep working till retirement. A lot of times your health won't allow for it. Or just when you get to that age, you're just, I'm done with it. I'm, I'm ready to be done. So that could mean two to three decades of investing after retiring, maybe four, if you, if you live long enough. 
So there is less human capital where you don't have as much income coming in. You're not saving. You don't have the ability to wait out bear markets as much as you did in the past as a young person because your biggest asset is should be financial assets at this point, right? So you're not like someone who's accumulating can take advantage of a bear market. So there's more balance involved at this stage. I just think you have to keep that balance of protecting your wealth on one side versus you need to keep up your standard of living on the other side, right? John, do a chart on of inflation here. This is just a simple thing that we've shown over time. How long it takes for different inflation rates to cut your money in half. So 3% inflation rate is about the long-term average. It takes 23 years to cut it in half. If you're a millionaire today, that million is worth $500,000 in 23 years. 4%, it would be 17 years. 5%, 14 years. Even 2%, it's 35 years if we're using that handy rule of 72. So unless you have more money than you know what to do with, the stock market is likely going to have to play a role in your portfolio in some fashion because it remains the best bet for beating inflation over the long term. Well, the short term, obviously, inflation can ding stocks like it has recently. So one of the ways I like to think about this is in terms of spending. So let's say you land on 4% of your portfolio each year you're going to take out for spending purposes, right? That's how you cover your spending each year and your, light, and your, your way of living. If you had a 60-40 portfolio, that would give you 10 years worth of spending, right? A 40-60 portfolio would give you 15 years worth of spending in fixed income or cash or something like that. Now, this ignores inflation in your spending over time. So I'm, it's pretty back of the envelope. But I think this is a good way to look at things in terms of getting comfortable with some balance and the understanding that you have to have, accept some volatility in your portfolio if you want to beat the rate of inflation over time. So a lot of retirees are going to want to leave money to next generation as well. Most retirees who have a lot of money don't end up spending it all. And so if that's the case, you're managing based on your children's or your grandchildren's time horizon and risk profile. And that, 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 that's, your, that's theirs, not yours. So I know it's a scary proposition once you're relying exclusively on financial assets to support your lifestyle, but you're going to have to live to accept a little bit of volatility with part of your portfolio. Maybe you kind of mentally bucket this. You know, this, this part of the portfolio, this 20, 30, 40, 50% is for the next 10 plus years. This part is for the next one to three years. This part is for the next three to seven years. Seven, whatever you have to do to get yourself comfortable there because you're balancing out spending some now and also growing it for the future. So that's the kind of thing where it stinks. It would be nice if you could just put your money into something that paid you 7% a year, year in and year out. It doesn't really exist, unfortunately, and you're just going to have to live with some volatility because people are living longer. Right. I, I think I like their attitude here of thinking about, you know, yeah, still still staying invested. It's not like it's a end date where you're cashing out all of your retirement you plans could, or something. You could make the point that your portfolio management is never more important than when you are retired, right? Because when you're accumulating assets and you're putting money to work, it doesn't your asset allocation doesn't matter nearly as much as it does when you're actually retiring and withdrawing money and financial planning and all this stuff. There's so much more that goes into it, which is why we have a lot of clients come to us when they're approaching retirement because it's there's a lot more complexities involved in that. In that's that actually what I was about to ask. If that's a popular time for people to get an advisor for the first time, it seems counterintuitive, but like it is. when they're actually retiring. It, because financial planning and advice is so much more important. Taxes are more important. Insurance yeah. is more important. All these things. It's It's definitely a mindset shift too, psychologically, to go from being an accumulator of assets to someone who's then spending it down. That can be tough for people to turn on a dime and then then spend because they just want to hoard it all their whole life and then to turn around and have to spend it. It's it's tough when there's not anything else coming in. Right. That makes sense. Cool. All right. all right. Next week, we are going to be back going over all the changes to retirement contribution limits, tax code, everything else you need to know for the new year. So if you have any questions, remember, email us, askthecompoundshow at gmail.com. If you're listening in podcast form, 
leave us a nice review. Every week you can just talk about Duncan's hats, right? The guy's That's never true. without a hat. I got some new ones for the holidays too, so keep your eyes peeled. There'll be some new ones. Perfect. If you're watching on YouTube, hit that like button, subscribe. You can also leave us a comment or a question on YouTube. We always check it. I'm always in the I'm always in the comments battling it out with people. I, I don't mind he- heading in there. We, we have some nice people you in there, so right have in. some good comments too. I don't mind. Keep those coming. Remember, email us, askthecompoundshow at gmail.com. Looking forward to an awesome year here. Let's yeah. do it. Well, I've got to go forward. <laughs> I'm not going to say it back. And we will see you next week. See you, everyone. This podcast is for informational purposes only. It is brought to you by Ritholtz Wealth Management. Clients of Ritholtz Wealth Management may maintain positions in the securities mentioned on this podcast.